morning in this sanctuary. Please feel free to wear your coats and hats and anything else that can keep you warm. Our greetings go out to our new addition, baby Elena, and to our sleepless parents, and uh, also to others who are traveling at this time, some who are not well, and we also, our prayers go out to um, Kiana Gueco, who's had a tummy ache and um, needs a little bit of care as well. So, Well, we're back this morning to Matthew chapter 5. And we're moving this morning from the topic of heavenly righteousness to heavenly hearts, which is where our Lord and Savior really brings us. He brings us to the heart of the matter when it comes to the issue of righteousness. Where does righteousness begin? Well, unlike the Pharisees and scribes, it doesn't begin with how much we study and how much we do. It's not less than that, but far more than that, Christ came to give us heavenly hearts that bring a heavenly righteousness into our lives, our relationships, into our world. And that is his goodness and gift, and that's why he came, and that's why he died. And this is the fulfillment of the law. And as we go back to the law, which is where we'll start this morning, in the second book of the law, Exodus, in the 20th chapter, it begins with the following words. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. This is a passage that we forget. We jump into the Ten Commandments and we forget this is the foundation, the anchor of the Ten Commandments and God's relationship with His people. This is where it starts. And this is where the Ten Words, or what we know as the Ten Commandments, begins. It begins with this introduction and declaration to the newly freed slaves out of Egypt, this declaration of the Lord's character and His standard of righteousness. What is right and what is wrong according to the character and word of God. And this is the standard of the Lord God's covenant relationship with His people. Every relationship has a standard. Married couples, you know this. Or you'll find it out soon. There is a standard to every relationship. And the Lord here is laying down the standard of the relationship between Him and the people He has just saved and made His people. Not by accident, these ten words, they begin with this declaration of who the Lord is, what He's done, and who His people are because of what He's done in their lives. He's defining the relationship. This is a DTR. Should be your standard for dating. And what does he point out to them? I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. The Lord is their God. He is the one who has brought them out of the land of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. Who are they? They are a people who have been saved by the Lord. 
They belong to Him. And this is really the foundation and the basis of what follows the Ten Commandments where God puts before them the nature and character of His love as the foundation of this relationship. And with the first four commandments, the Lord God shows His people the right way to love Him. I'm sure after Valentine's Day, many of you ladies got any number of different gifts. Some of them you wanted, some of them you didn't. And oh, that your husbands would learn the right way to love you. Okay, well that takes time. And eventually, Lord willing, we get there, though we're less than perfect. But here the Lord lays down in those first four commandments for his people, right at the beginning, explicitly, kindly, graciously, This is the way I call you to love me. That you will have no other gods before me. That you'll be faithful. Monogamous. That you'll prioritize my love for you. And then the six commandments that follow those first four commandments. God makes clear the love he expects us to show one another. You're not to murder one another. You're to honor your parents. You're not to steal from one another. You're not to commit adultery. You're not to covet what someone else has. Their house, their home, their car, their job. Why? You're to love one another in the way I have loved you. Selflessly. Humbly. In a life-giving way. Not a life-taking way. And the Lord is showing His people His character. He's showing them the life That he has put before them. And the intent and the direction of this law, brothers and sisters, really the spirit more than the letter, is there to live in love in the way in which God has loved them. And in doing so, they are to be a light to the nations. That's in the Old Testament. So that the other nations around who are burning their children and trying to get rich and conquer and kill as fast as they can can look and see, well, there's something different here. And so that they might come and see from their lives and look to the Lord and be brought to repentance and a salvation in a God who is righteous, good, holy, and gracious and merciful. Now, why are we talking about this this morning? And what does this have to do with us New Covenant saints? It's because this is what Jesus began to fulfill with his disciples when he appeared in Galilee and said, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Follow me. And what he begins to show them in his Sermon on the Mount. He is speaking to his disciples as King and Lord of heaven. And he's declaring to them who he is. What he has done for them. And who they now are because of him. And beginning with the Beatitudes, what he's doing with those Beatitudes is he's defining the relationship. The Beatitudes are really Jesus' DTR. And he moves from the Beatitudes to establish and explain to his disciples his standard of righteousness. For his kingdom. The standard of righteousness that defines and sets how things are to be in the way they're to live and love. How they are to relate to Christ. How they're to think of Jesus. 
but also how they're to think and love one another. And of course, that standard of righteousness is nothing less than Christ himself. He is their standard of righteousness, God with us. And Jesus, as he walks them through, similar to the Exodus and fulfillment of the Exodus, he's pointing out to them, you are no longer to think as people who belong to the world. You're no longer to think in the righteousness of the world or the self-righteousness of the world. You are now to think as light and salt, as children of God. And your lives are to reflect that. In fact, your lives are to demonstrate a righteousness that brings glory to God, not you. And this is what it means to be salt and light in the world. We're not about doing whatever is right in our own eyes. We're to think, we're to live, and we're to love as Jesus does. Brothers and sisters, that's the standard that Jesus puts before all of us in our relationships with one another, in our marriages, in our family, and even in extending as we interact with people outside of the church. And Jesus brings them to the point, and this is where we landed last week, where he says to them, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you're not going to get into my kingdom. Why? Because the righteousness that Jesus demands of us is infinitely greater than the righteousness of this world. And it is a righteousness that can only come from righteous hearts. If you have your Bibles, please turn with me to Matthew chapter 5, verse 17. And as we walk through this section, Jesus begins to point out, this is really where he's bringing his disciples. This is what kingdom life is all about. This is what the Sermon on the Mount is all about. It's about a heavenly righteousness that comes from the gift of heavenly hearts. And nothing less is good enough for God or his family. Verse 17, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will ever pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you're offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. 
First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. This is the word of the Lord. and The Lord will indeed bless the hearing of his word. I think it's fair to say that most first century Jews were under no illusion that the world would get better. In fact, for many, their lives had gotten materially considerably better under the Roman Empire. Better roads, safer streets, better goods, better material. And yet at the same time, there certainly was this sentiment that life was not getting better and in fact perhaps it was getting worse. And the hope and expectation of many of those first century Jews was that the Messiah would come and he would make things right. That's what they yearned for, that's what they longed for, the hope of the coming of the kingdom promised in the Old Testament of a king who would come and make things right. How? By bringing in a new reign of heavenly righteousness. First in Jerusalem, then in Israel, and then in the rest of the world. This was the hope and expectation that sort of permeates the Gospels that people come to Jesus with. But what most seem to have forgotten or ignored, and brothers and sisters, we still tend to forget this today, and we still tend to ignore it. The repeated testimony of God's word. This world will never be made right until our hearts are made right. Right marriages, right families, right churches, right politics, right schools, Right nations, right governments do not happen, brothers and sisters, according to God's word, without right hearts. And until we understand that, we have everything backwards. And we're all speaking hot air to one another. And as we continue to listen to God's word, and you go back to the Old Testament, God repeats this. In fact, you go to Deuteronomy, and at the end of rolling out the law, he talks about the need for circumcised hearts, that their hearts would be made soft and would not be hard. It comes up over and over and over again from the beginning. The Lord makes it clear that nothing short of a miracle can make right hearts. That God alone is the one who can change a sinful heart into a righteous heart. God alone can forgive. God alone can transform. But the good news is, not only is he able, but he desires to do so. 
And this, brothers and sisters, comes up over and over and over again throughout the law and the prophets. And we see that this was, in fact, the intent of the law and the prophets. It was to point people back to God as our Lord and Savior, to the Lord as the God who is in charge and control of everything and the one who redeems and saves, not us. And this, brothers and sisters, is really the good news of the Old Testament. As we come to the New Testament, Jesus picks this up and he brings it to where God always intended it. That our right hearts cannot be made by our education, our religion, our technology, and our politics. How often do we emphasize that? If they just knew, if we just sent our kids to the right school, if they just had the right education, if we had the right children's program, all of these ways that we look at education and information, like that's going to change our hearts. But Jesus comes in with the Sermon on the Mount and he shows the good news that what we need, God has given us in Christ. He's given us a Savior. He's given us a Lord. He's given God with us who has come to give us new hearts so that we can live new lives. New lives of heavenly righteousness. And this brothers and sisters, is what Jesus is talking about in the Sermon on the Mount from Matthew 5 through 7. He's pointing out that heavenly righteousness really comes from heavenly hearts. And this is what it means to be part of God's kingdom. This is the criteria of God's kingdom. It's not a matter of, I have a baptism certificate. It's not a matter of, I've served in this ministry. It's a matter of, has Christ come in And do you have a heart from heaven as opposed to a heart from this world? And that's what we long for and pray for, for our children. And this brings us to our first point this morning. Heavenly righteousness requires heavenly hearts. Heavenly righteousness requires heavenly hearts. There's this old spaghetti western I like. And... I don't endorse that you use spaghetti westerns as the standard of your theology. But at the end of this spaghetti western, the villain continues to shoot at Clint Eastwood. And Clint Eastwood reminds this villain of what he's always said. He says, Ramon, shoot for the heart. Ramon, shoot for the heart. And Ramon keeps shooting for the heart, but what he doesn't realize, and maybe I shouldn't give you the spoiler in the giveaway, is that the heart of the hero is protected by something a bullet cannot penetrate. And brothers and sisters, it's a terrible illustration, fallen in many ways. But how often do we forget That our walk with the Lord is all about the heart. And how often do we focus on so many other things. And we fail to realize that Christ has given us the heart that we need to withstand. All the sin, all the ugliness, all the darkness of this world. And instead we're trying to do it all ourselves. Well as we come to God's word 
This idea of heavenly righteousness refers to the righteousness of God, not the righteousness of men, not the things that we accomplish on our own by trying to do it ourselves or trying harder. And the idea of a heavenly heart is a heart that belongs entirely to heaven, a heart that belongs entirely to God. It's entirely devoted to God, but it's entirely from God, as opposed to the hearts of men. And this is what Jesus' Beatitudes are describing. He's describing hearts that belong entirely to God. This is where Jesus starts. Hearts that are poor in spirit. Hearts that are broken and grieve over sin, especially our sin. Hearts that are meek. Hearts that hunger and thirst for righteousness. What is right before God as the top priority. Hearts that are merciful. Hearts that are pure. And the idea of pure is entirely devoted to the Lord. Entirely devoted, desiring what the Lord desires. These, as Jesus walks through the Beatitudes, you'll remember, these are the hallmarks of God's grace. These are the hallmarks of heavenly hearts that belong to God, that belong to heaven, not the world. And the fruit of heavenly hearts is what the rest of the Sermon on the Mount is about, what Jesus is describing, their lives of heavenly righteousness like Jesus. Lives that are peacemakers, reconciling people and calling them to repentance with the Lord. Lives that are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Lives that are like the prophets of the Old Testament. Now as religious people, and we all tend to be religious people, that's why we're here at church on Sunday, myself included, we tend to get it backwards. We tend to think that right studying and right actions make right lives. And this, brothers and sisters, is the framework of the Pharisees and the scribes. And we tend to buy into that. We live that way. If you study hard, you get a good degree, you get a good job. Right? And it transfers over for all of you who are doing premarital. The idea is, okay, if I just learn all of these things, I'm going to have a great marriage. Here's a waiver and disclaimer. Wrong. Okay, just because you do premarital and you go through these things doesn't mean you're going to have a great marriage. Doesn't mean your life during the first year is going to be easier. Is there still sin after you do the premarital class? Are you still a sinner? Are there things that the Lord needs to do? Okay, but that is the propensity of our fleshly heart. All of us, right? If I just practice basketball long enough, eventually I'm going to be able to slam dunk, right? That's how we're framed. And we tend to have it backwards. We think right actions and right deeds lead to righteous relationships, righteous marriages, righteous lives, righteous churches. But that's the opposite of how Jesus shepherds his disciples. And he shepherds them because we have a tendency, even when God's given us a heavenly heart, sometimes we forget and we go back to Egypt and we think that way. Because when we think that way, brothers and sisters, when our marriages go well, when our friendships go well, when our job goes well, who gets the credit? Who's the hero? Who's the God? 
Who's the savior of the church, the ministry, the family, the marriage, and all of those things? It's us when we think of it that way. Okay, and when you look at the Pharisees and the scribes, to some degree, this is the framework of the human heart, which only gets pumped up on steroids the more religious we get. I study hard. I obey more of God's word than the next person. Therefore, I'm more righteous. Therefore, I have a righteous life. And Jesus is coming saying, look, the law was just the beginning. It's not the end. The law was to point you to your need for a completely new heart. A heart that God alone can give. And Jesus points out from the beginning, the spirit intent of the law is to show us the greatness of the God who has created us and saved us for himself. It's no small work that he does. He gives us hearts that belong entirely to him. Hearts that look and act and walk like Jesus, the Son of God, whose heart belonged entirely to the Father. And these are the hearts that lead and yield the fruit of righteous lives, that think heavenly thoughts, that have heavenly desires, that want to pursue what God desires. And as a result, the fruit is righteous lives, righteous marriages, righteous relationships, righteous ministries, righteous churches, all of those different things, righteous politics. Where does it come from? It comes from God, not us. And it's a gift of the Lord. And so it comes and brings us to the question, brothers and sisters, who do our hearts belong to? Do our hearts belong to our work? Do our hearts belong to ministry? I have to ask myself that in a regular question. Am I doing this for the Lord because my heart belongs to Him or is it because I'm supposed to, because I'm a pastor? Do our hearts belong to the Lord and do they belong to heaven? Well, the proof is in our righteousness. And the proof is whether the lives we live and the righteousness that's on display is a self-righteousness like the scribes and the Pharisees or is it a righteousness that's like Jesus? And so Jesus says in verse 20, he says, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never. And in the Greek it's emphatic. Not a possibility. You're not even going to get a foot in the door. You will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And for the disciples, this probably rocked their world. Because the scribes and the Pharisees were Jews who had devoted their entire lives not only to studying God's word, but obeying God's word. And the truth of the matter was, then and now, the scribes and Pharisees knew more scripture, but they had also obeyed more scripture than anyone. Then and now. You to put together however many, what is it? 613 commandments, all the different commandments of the Old Testament, plus all the instruction of how to keep it. If you were to do a tally, okay, of how much was kept for what percentage of their lives, the scribes and Pharisees would be at the top. Man, we'd be 
where would we be? And the disciples, as Galilean fishermen, nowhere near. Matthew, tax collector, nowhere near. But brothers and sisters, this is the beauty of the gospel. It's not less than studying and obeying God's word. We do need to study and obey God's word. And Jesus makes that point with the law. It's not less than the law. But it is so much more. It's infinitely more. Because Christ gave this to us in order to fulfill the intent of the law. And the intent of the law is that we would know and love God and we would live and love one another in the way that God loves us. And this is what Jesus gives and this is what Jesus brings to completion. And this is what Jesus expects of his disciples. Why? To whom much is given, much is required. The good news of God's word is Jesus didn't come to lower the standard of God's word. He didn't come, brothers and sisters, to make your life and my life easier. And this is a challenge, right? How often are we tempted to think, because I'm saved, because Jesus is my Savior, my life should be easier and better. My relationships should be easier and better. My marriage should be easier and better. But when we think that way, brothers and sisters, we're thinking the way of the world. Jesus didn't come into our lives to lower the standard, to give us a B stock or a B share, while there are certain super saints who have an A share. He didn't come to have a handful of superstars in the kingdom and everybody else's fans, and we come for All-Star Weekend. Christ came, and He fulfilled God's righteousness. He upheld it, He obeyed all of it, and He came also to bring it to completion in our lives that we might have the fullness of the rightness of God. All of God's goodness, all of God's mercy, all of God's grace. Brothers and sisters, he came to give us lives of heavenly righteousness that begin with hearts of heavenly righteousness. Just like him, so that we could be salt and light and so that we and our lives could bring glory to God and not ourselves. But with these words, he makes the point to the disciples. He is King and Lord. And because this is His gift to them, what they share of as they share His life, He also is going to hold them accountable to this. Brothers and sisters, as Christians, we don't get a pass. Because God is gracious to us, we don't get to slide by. Our righteousness is is to be infinitely greater than the world, not less than the world. R.C. Sproul made this point. They used to have, this is back in the day, before many of you were born, a cassette ministry at the church. Julie enabled me to clear out my cassettes. So, 
They had a cassette ministry, and R.C. Sproul made the point that when people participated in that cassette ministry, people would borrow and they would never give back. And he made the point, he said, people presume that because we believe in the gospel and we're children of grace, it meant there are no deadlines, no boundaries, we can do whatever we want, they don't mind, they're gracious people. We have a tendency in Christian circles to think grace means our standards are less than the world. No, they're different from the world, brothers and sisters. They're different from the world. And Christ comes in and says, I am going to hold you accountable. Why? Because I have given you everything you need to accomplish this. And I will walk with you and I will love you and I will hold you by the hand. And I together will go with you. And as long as you're with me, I'm going to do everything you need to help you meet this standard of righteousness. And that means I'm going to hold you accountable when you don't. And it is, as I've illustrated before, like a parent who lovingly takes care of their children and gives them everything that they need to be a part of the family and then calls them and blows the whistle on them and holds them accountable when they deviate from that. And beginning in verse 21, what Jesus proceeds to do is he gives six examples to hold his disciples and you and I accountable. And he gives six examples to illustrate the heavenly righteousness and the heavenly hearts he requires of his disciples. And with each example, he begins with the law, but then he moves beyond the law. And he begins first with how we think about him, but then he moves on to how we think and speak to one another. And he uses this not only as an example, but as a test of the righteousness of our lives. Does the righteousness of our lives exhibit the righteousness of our hearts? And this brings us to our second point for this morning. Heavenly righteousness does not tolerate arrogant or angry hearts. Sorry, I have resentful hearts up here. Heavenly righteousness does not tolerate Angry and resentful hearts, but you can add arrogant in with that. This is an audible, a last minute call. Jesus begins to go to the heart. And he begins to look at what's going on in the heart. And he begins to show his disciples, I'm going to hold you accountable, not by just what you do. I'm going to hold you accountable to what's going on in your heart. Does your heart belong to the Lord? Do your thoughts belong to the Lord? Do your opinions belong to the Lord? In America, we tend to think that because of the First Amendment, everyone is free to think and speak as we please. Everybody is entitled to their own opinion, right? How often have we heard that in the church? And after, Well, that might be your opinion. Well, I'm entitled to my opinion. And here in America, even hate speech is protected by the First Amendment. And the only time it's not is when hate speech directly incites criminal or violent action, like the Capitol riots. But I've got news for you, brothers and sisters. And I've got good news for you. Jesus is not an American. And he didn't come to die for American freedoms and justices. Now listen, that's not to cast shade on all that we enjoy in this country. And we enjoy a lot. 
But let's not confuse what we enjoy and the freedoms and the justices we have with the righteousness of heaven and why Christ came. In God's word, in the Old Testament and New Testament, our thoughts and our speech are an expression of our hearts. Out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. So good speech and good thoughts reflect good hearts. Righteous speech and righteous thoughts reflect righteous hearts. And unrighteous thoughts and unrighteous speech comes from unrighteous hearts. And the Lord holds us accountable for all of it, without exception. And here Jesus points out he is the Lord and King of heaven and he holds every thought and every word accountable to his standard of heavenly righteousness. Are you believers? Then the standard the Lord holds for us in our thoughts, in our speech, in our marriages, in our relationships in the church, in what we say to one another, in what we do in ministry and on our jobs and in our work, the thoughts and speech, he holds it accountable not to the world's standards and not to American standards. American standards, as long as you don't kill someone, you're okay. Think and do whatever you want. I would hear that in the college campuses when I would go and do evangelizing. Right? Someone would come out off the top and say, are you going to give me a hard time because I'm sleeping with my girlfriend? What's wrong with that? Unless I'm hurting someone. Right? That's our, that's our standard. Jesus is coming to his disciples and saying, no, you have heavenly hearts. And that means your thoughts and your speech are accountable to me. You're not the boss anymore. I am. I love you. I've come, I will die for you, so I'm going to hold you accountable to what you say and what you do. And the standard of righteousness is the standard of heaven. And Jesus begins with addressing our thoughts and holding it accountable first about how we think about Jesus. And everything flows from this, brothers and sisters. What you do, the lives, I can tell you what you think of Jesus. Okay, now that's between you and the Lord. Maybe it's just my opinion. But how you live your life is a reflection, first and foremost, about what you think of the Lord. How you speak to your wife and your children. It's a reflection of whether you think Jesus is really present in your home. Is he really omniscient? Does he know everything? Is he omnipresent? Does he hear everything we say? Does he see do you believe he really sees what you do on your laptop when no one else is looking? Heavenly hearts begin with heavenly thoughts. And heavenly thoughts begin with how we think about who Jesus is. Is he truly king and Lord? Or is he just someone who puts some wise sayings in the Bible that we can follow? And so that's why Jesus begins in verse 17 where he says, Do not think I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. And we went through this last week. But he continues in verse 21, moving from how we think about him, about how we think about one another. And in verse 21, he begins with the law. He says, You have heard that it was said to those of old. And this is a reference to the giving or teaching of the law by Moses that's first spoken to the children of Israel in the wilderness. And he talks about, you have heard, because at that time, okay, 
there were a limited number of manuscripts, people learned from fathers teaching their children. It was an oral tradition. It was the responsibility that you would recite from heart the word of the Lord. And so they learned from hearing the Ten Commandments. He says, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder. That's the sixth command. Taken from Exodus 20.13 and Deuteronomy 5.17. It's the divine prohibition against taking a life wrongfully, apart from the Lord's command. And the principle that the Lord put before them is that the Lord is the ruler of life and death. He is the one who creates life. He is the one who has given life. He is the only one who has the right to take life. You and I, that is not our prerogative or our privilege. Life in its entirety, it doesn't belong to you. It belongs to the Lord. And Jesus then goes on and summarizes the Old Testament instruction about murder. He says, whoever murders, this is what you've heard it said, will be liable or will be guilty to judgment. The idea of judgment is you will be condemned and you will be punished. So those who wrongfully take a life will stand trial and if they're found guilty, they are to pay with their lives. They have taken a life, they will have to give a life. And in God's economy, in his kingdom, there is no place for murder. There is no place for taking a life. In the righteousness of God, in the righteous lives of his people, it is contrary to the character of God. Now this was the well-known standard of righteousness and justice of the old covenant law of Moses. But in verse 22, Jesus continues. He says, but I say to you, and with these words, Jesus emphatically asserts that he is an authority that is greater than Moses and greater than the law. Why? Well, as you go through the rest of the Gospels and you go through the rest of the New Testament, the Lord shows us before the eternal Son of God became the incarnate Son of God, He is the Lord who first gave the law. Jesus is greater than Moses. Jesus is the ultimate giver of the law. He is the living word of God. He has an authority that is greater than Moses. He says, but I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be what? He uses the exact same words liable to judgment, guilty of condemnation and punishment. Guilty of the same condemnation and punishment that is given to someone who murders. What's Jesus doing here? He's connecting what we think with what we do. And he's showing us that in God's eyes, God does not split it up. He doesn't do how we roll. He doesn't sort of minimize our sin, separate it, and try and find some way to make it okay. And in fact, he goes to our thoughts and he shows us that the Lord, according to heavenly righteousness, holds us accountable to the same standard that he holds our actions. Brothers and sisters, he comes here and he 
applies God's standard of righteousness to how we think and how we feel. Our emotions. Guess what? Your emotions are accountable to the Lord. You may not feel like you have control over your emotions, how you feel. And that may be your daily experience. Nonetheless, the entirety of a child of God belongs to the Lord. If my children see fit, this is an example, in the middle of a supermarket to throw a temper tantrum, and they decide to lie down in the aisle and shake their hands and scream as loud as they want. They may not feel like they have control over it. But if I'm in that supermarket, guess what? I, as their father, am responsible for all of them to come in and do what's needed to be done in order to take care of that child lovingly and to do what's right. I'm not in a position to say, I'm there. I, I don't have control of their feelings. That's just something they do every time they get to the supermarket. I don't know, store clerk, you go and figure it out. And let me know if there's some way to handle this. No, I'm responsible as their father. And Christ comes in with the disciples and he lets them know in love but with authority. He is responsible for their feelings and their thoughts and he will hold them accountable for their feelings and their thoughts. And the standard that he uses is God's heavenly standard. And it's a standard that does not tolerate sinful, hateful, arrogant, and prideful and destructive Thoughts or feelings. Now that may sound harsh, brothers and sisters, but when you see that the Lord is the remedy, what a help and what a mercy. We are able to shepherd our own hearts when destructive thoughts come in, when demeaning thoughts come in, when sinful thoughts come in. And the mercy of God is He's able through His standard of heavenly righteousness to call it for what it is idolatrous and sinful and destructive. And as children of God, we're able to go to the Lord and say, Lord, this is not right or correct. You are my Father. Help me with this. I will give no room for destructive or sinful thoughts. But instead, as Paul exhorts, we are set our minds on things above. We are to fill our hearts and minds with the truth and goodness of heaven rather than the despair and darkness of this world. This, brothers and sisters, is an option and a choice and a privilege that the world does not have. Because all they have are the destructive thoughts and feelings of this world. But we have the option of the mind of Christ. In fact, we have that. And not to use that, brothers and sisters. Now, this is going to be strong. When Christ has given us heavenly thoughts and a heavenly mind, not to use it It's not just ungrateful, brothers and sisters. 
It's rebellious and it's prideful. It's to say to the Lord Jesus, I can do this on my own. Jesus comes in and when he says, everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. The word for anger that's used here in Greek, it refers to not God's righteous indignation against hard-heartedness or unbelief. And typically, when you go to God's word, what gets God angry is hard-heartedness and unbelief because those are both the fruit of pride that we know better. But the word for anger that he's using here is an anger that goes on and on and on. Very specifically, the grammar and the language here refers to ongoing. It refers to a simmering, a habitual, a nurtured discontent and bitterness of the human heart that bears a grudge, that refuses to trust God, that refuses to release others, that refuses to let go of hurt, but instead it desires to put someone in their place. It desires to see them condemned and punished as we think is right. It's an anger that eventually leads to a heart of vengeance, what we refer to as putting someone in the doghouse. Well, how do we know this? Because as you read as Jesus walks through and goes to the speech that comes out of this, calling someone raka, calling someone a fool, using contemptuous and demeaning speech, he's showing contextually the anger he's talking about here is not righteous indignation, but it is an arrogant and resentful anger. It's the idea of a volcano, that it's boiling, 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 or the boiling pot that left unchanged or poked a bit or turned the heat up a little bit, it spills over and begins to do damage. And typically as this word is used throughout the New Testament, it refers to an anger that if it is not stopped will lead to destruction. And this is the anger of Cain. And this is the anger of the Pharisees and the scribes and the Sadducees that eventually leads to them crucifying Jesus. And this is the anger of man that does not accomplish the righteousness of God, as James points out. It's an anger that comes, brothers and sisters, from pride. Now, brothers and sisters, if we're honest with ourselves, this type of anger is more common than we care to admit. And that is in part because we live in a world that minimizes anger or says it's normal because they don't know what to do with it. They have no remedy for it. But Jesus warns his disciples frequently. He even says, beware of the yeast of the Pharisees, right? He warns them about this because it creeps in through the back door and it creeps in in our hearts and how we think about ourselves. When Jesus is not present and we're God, we think we have a right to get angry at whoever we're upset with, whoever has not treated me the way I deserve to be treated. Brothers and sisters, how often have we felt annoyed or displeasure with someone? Just Now, how often when we felt annoyed or displeasure, is it over something that's completely new in our lives? Never happened before. The very first time I've ever been upset about the neighbors next door 
about the person who cuts me off when I'm driving. About the store clerk who makes me wait. First time, never happened before. Well, as we look at it, brothers and sisters, we see in our hearts, typically, there are things that are triggers from the outside, but in our hearts, the same things over and over and over and over again that we are frustrated and irritated with. And more often than not, it's usually when things don't go the way we'd hoped or expected or we think we deserve. And brothers, this type of thinking and feeling usually points us to unresolved, anger or expectations in our hearts that are not being met. It usually points to something that we are hanging on to and we haven't let go of before the Lord. And when we feel this way about someone, someone who in God's eyes, God's eyes, is our equal, our brother, equal standing before the Lord. The Lord comes and says, this is part and parcel of murder. It's a contemptuous heart. It's a heart that looks down on someone and if they don't give me what they want, I'm going to let them know it and I'm going to push. And in the continuum of things, as the Lord knows our hearts, the only thing lacking is opportunity or my ability to get away with it. And brothers and sisters, this is what we see boiling over in our society today. We see all these mass shootings that happen. Universities, wherever it happens. Churches, wherever we go. People get a gun. They get offended. They're not treated the way they think they deserve. And the next thing you know, basically, they're shooting everybody. And, you know, as much as I'm for gun legislation being an ex-Canadian, gun legislation doesn't address the human heart. The world doesn't know what to do with it. We're still scratching our heads and it goes higher and higher and higher. Why? Because it's a matter of the human heart. And in God's eyes and according to Christ's righteousness, we are as guilty as someone who has murdered someone and left as is. That is the way it would go except for the grace of God. And we see in this the fruit of a prideful heart that ultimately denies God, denies the Lordship of Christ, exalts and, exalts and worship ourselves, and tries to destroy God's creation. Beginning, where does the destruction happen? The destruction happens, brothers and sisters, in our hearts in our thoughts. That's where we begin to put someone less and less and less and less and we put ourselves so we can put ourselves higher and higher and higher in their eyes so that we can be justified. Self-justification, self-righteousness. And it begins in our hearts and then it leads to our words and our actions. This brings us to our next point. And I know I've kept you so I'll try and tie up. Heavenly righteousness does not tolerate angry and arrogant words. Heavenly righteousness does not tolerate angry and arrogant words. I've got up here, heavenly righteousness condemns 
angry and arrogant words. In verse 22, Jesus does not simply hold us accountable for how we think or feel about a brother and sister. He holds us accountable for what we say to one another and he holds us accountable for every last word. And the standard he holds us accountable to, yes, it's the way in which Christ speaks to us, brothers and sisters. The way Christ speaks to us. And he moves from everyone who is angry with his brother to whoever insults his brother. Literally, someone who says to his brother, Raka, which was an Aramaic term of contempt. The equivalent in our day and age of calling someone an idiot. The guy who cuts me off in the car. What an idiot. Guilty many times, Okay. It's the application of a labor that's an, a label, excuse me, that's an expression of hate and anger. The intent of the heart is to demean. It's to take someone down a few notches. It's to make them look like the idiot so that we look like the good person. We're the only one who deserves to have no traffic and to be able to drive the way I want and get straight to my destination. And as he does throughout the rest of his ministry, Jesus draws a connection between our hearts, our thoughts, our feelings, our words. And he says, whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. The council, the literal word, is the Sanhedrin, the supreme court in Jerusalem or Palestine at the time. Okay, what type of cases go to the supreme court? Petty theft, shoplifting, to the big cases. They're the constitutional cases. They're the things that infect the entire nation and the entire future of the nation. And Jesus is coming and saying, look, this is how seriously I take this. Your words and speech that demeans or ridicules or puts someone down is something that affects the entire body of Christ, the future of the body of Christ. I refuse to tolerate it. It has no place in my kingdom. You murder not only with your thoughts, you murder with your words. You destroy someone else. You take them down. And he points out that such acts are worthy of the highest, the Supreme Court. And then he moves on from there and he talks about using the term fool or moron literally in Greek and says that those who use such language are going to be guilty of what? Hell. Hell. That is no joke, brothers and sisters. The idea of calling someone a fool is to say that they are worthless. Why does Jesus make such a big deal about this? Brothers and sisters, it's a prideful and arrogant and idolatrous heart that not only defiles the person who says it, and not only defiles the person who receives it, it defiles the entire family and household of God. And it takes it away from God, what God desires or created it to be. But why does God care so much? Brothers and sisters, He cares so much because He loves you and I. And this brings us to our final point this morning. Heavenly righteousness is the righteousness of Christ. Christ came 
And he left his place in glory and he humbled himself for sinners like you and I. Not people who were better than he is. People who were far worse. And he died on the cross so that people who were worse than he is might be forgiven and that they might become sons of God. When our hearts go in this direction, brothers and sisters, we are reversing that. We are doing the absolute opposite. We are taking someone who in God's eyes is equal with us and we are raising ourselves above them. It is the exact opposite of the gospel. And though we don't think of it as that big of a deal, it's just what I thought, it's just my words, it was just, I didn't mean anything by that. First of all, it reflects what we think of the Lord. Not much. Second of all, it reflects what we think of ourselves. A lot. But thirdly and most importantly, it stands in the face of God's love for you and I. The testimony of God's word. Why is God so outraged by murder? Because he created you and I. He loves us. We are precious in his sight. It says in God's word that he does not want, it is not his desire that anyone should perish. His desire is that all would come to repentance and faith in Christ. That all men would be saved. So much does he love the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever should believe in him would not perish but have heavenly, everlasting Life from above. Precious in the sight of the Lord. And so brothers and sisters, Jesus is pointing out in our hearts, our thoughts, and our words when we depart from the heavenly hearts that He has given us, we're living and we're walking in the hate of this world. That not only promotes hate in our own hearts, brothers and sisters, but it promotes hate in the household of God. Now what's the remedy? Brothers and sisters, the remedy is Christ. And when we get back from Shepherd's Conference in a few weeks, we're going to deal with part two as Jesus walks through. I don't tolerate this, but this is the way I do want you to walk. And it's to walk with humble and gracious hearts that will remove any obstacle to reconciliation first with the Lord and then with one another. That we would highly esteem both the Lord and our brothers and sisters in Christ. That we would think of one another more highly than ourselves. This is the reflection of a heavenly heart. But where does that come, brothers and sisters? Very simply, it comes from repentance and faith in Christ. Until we've come before the Lord and we've recognized that we are not worthy, that our hearts are sinful, until we look to Him to give us the heavenly heart that we do not understand, until we highly esteem the one who came and gave His life for us, brothers and sisters, we will never esteem one another, we will never think well of one another, and we will never speak well of one another. But the good news of Jesus Christ is the very reason He came and the very reason He lives and the ministry that He gives and what He enables us to do, brothers and sisters, in our marriages, 
in our relationships with our children is to see them with the eyes of God, to recognize I have no right to stand over this person. The only right I have is to point them to the Savior who has forgiven me much, who has saved me, the chief among sinners, and to point them to the one who can give them this same heart. Let's close in prayer. Lord Jesus, would our righteousness be a righteousness from heaven? Would we walk, Lord, and listen to you? Would we let you be king? And would, O Lord, everyone this day look to you for the heavenly hearts that we so desperately need? In your name we pray, amen.